0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Phil Simon. His latest book is Project Management in the Hybrid Workplace. And I knew instantly from that book being shared out on social media by my friend, Jay Bear, that it was vetted. (laughs) And then I took a closer look and knew I had to have him on the show. And then I took a deeper look and realized, oh, this book is his 12th book, and his last two were right in line with this show. 2021, he released Reimagining Collaboration, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, and the post-COVID world of work. That fits in perfectly with this show. And then I noticed that he also had Message Not Received, why business communication is broken and how to fix it. In 2015. So he was ahead of the curve back then. And, you know, I think back to 2015 and I'm like, yes, I've said this story many times and I'll do it right here real quick. Getting pinged on Slack and Skype and text message and voicemail and Facebook Messenger and email. All at random times, not knowing what the hierarchy is of importance there. I think I share this in the conversation with Phil as well. So, if you have any kind of sympathy or empathy or resonance with that problem, not to mention his new book, Project Management in the Hybrid Workplace, we talk about the problem of the current workspace when it comes to hybrid and remote and getting things done. It's about communication, it's about collaboration, it's about coordination, it's about expectation. It's about all of these things. And for some people, it's about accepting the fact that they are a project manager, even if they don't realize it. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Phil Simon. Well, this week, it's my privilege to welcome to the show, Phil Simon. Phil, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
1: Thanks for having me. i looking forward to our
0: chat. So we were talking pre-show Apparently, I found out about you too late, but I did find out about you, and it was through our mutual acquaintance slash friend, Jay Bear, who actually he's been on the show at least twice, maybe more. Not sure. It's been a while, but I couldn't help but then start to do a deep dive, and I was like, wait, Uh you've got... Well, I won't go there, but (laughs) you can insert into your imagination. You've written 12 books. This is not just the one new book. Well, it's the one new book, but you had one last year and one in 2015 that also kind of called attention to itself for me. The new book is Project Management in a Hybrid Workspace or Workplace, sorry. And some people right now are just like, well, they heard the intro and I said why they need to. It's not just about project management. It's about so much more. And in fact, I think the real key here is to start from a place of your previous two books because they kind of set context a little bit for this one because a lot of people don't realize that project management falls apart when communication and collaboration fall apart because we haven't yet figured those out to a certain extent. Does that make sense? It does. And my 2015 book, that was number seven, Message Not Received,
1: is very much about breakdown of business communication. We use too much jargon and too much email. And that led to subsequent books like Slack for Dummies and Zoom for Dummies. After I wrote Zoom for Dummies and researched that book and went really deep. It's a 400-page book. Now, some people said, how can you write a 400-page book on Zoom? would you use a big font? I go, no, there's actually a lot more there than most people realize, particularly if you're using it in a browser. It really can operate as a an internal collaboration hub and do so much more with apps and blah, blah, blah. But when I noticed how much Zoom and Slack had in common, ditto for Microsoft Teams, that became my 11th book, Reimagining Collaboration. And then that new book on project management stems from that, because you have certainly these tools that, allow for efficient communication and collaboration but the new book almost asks the next question in advance of what because at a high level i believe that there are two types of work there's the process-oriented work which covid really didn't affect that much in the, in the book i make the case for if you're a call center rep or process payroll or insurance claims you could pretty much do that anywhere but for project-based work particularly if it's a new project with a new group of people whether they're colleagues or partners that's a lot dicier. And and we were never all that good at it when we could tap someone on the shoulder and say, "Hey, Eric, you got a minute. What's up? But now, because so much of what we do, as you've talked about on some of the other podcasts I've listened to, so much of the work is asynchronous, something that could take five minutes to answer. It could take five days.
0: You're right on there when you say that that essentially, even prior to the pandemic, We had issues with communication and collaboration, communication in terms of deciding frequency and location and channels and all that kind of stuff, which I think we're still struggling with. Don't get me wrong. That still drives me nuts. I think it's hilarious that you've also written Zoom and Slack, two separate books, for dummies, which are two of the most ubiquitous tools used in the past three years, and still people struggle with using those.
1: It's unfortunate, and when you use the word hysterical, I'd qualify that with on the outside. If you're looking at a project that's struggling, it could be funny, but if you're on the inside, it's incredibly frustrating. And if, and certainly, in the last two books, I mentioned things like getting people on the same page for using tools. You know, I've gotten into arguments with folks who said, "We're not using your Calendly. Who the hell are you?" And I think, well, okay, we're really not going to go back and forth seventeen times. How's Thursday at six? No, how's Wednesday at four? Um. So these tools aren't that complicated to learn. It just requires a shift in mindset. But as I've said many times before, people are stubborn. They hate change. And to quote the great management thinker, Peter Senge, I think it's like people won't change unless it's their idea. So hopefully the book aids that they go, all right, I don't have to become a Python programmer to learn how to do different things. I just need a willingness to learn new things and in some cases go someplace else. I mean, when I did research for the new book, I discovered that from the Project Management Institute at a PMI, something like three in five projects succeeded. That's not a great percentage. And I'd argue that that was in the synchronous world. Now, when you factor in, I sent Eric a message, but I don't know if he got it or I didn't understand his response because he's not a clear writer, which of course isn't true. So we can get into it. But the new book is based on nine prescriptions, things that won't guarantee a result but will increase your odds of success. Kind of like if you're playing blackjack, you could still lose if the dealer's showing a six and you've got 15 and you hold, but that is the statistically correct play.
0: Well, and so I would say in my caveat originally where someone's like, oh, book on project management. Well, I'm not a project manager. One, I would reply with a yes and a no and lean more heavily on the no and say, you may not think you are, but you are. And even if you don't formally have training in that, you're still managing people who are managing projects. Some of those people are projects, let's be clear. But it still benefits you to learn more about project management and what is and isn't working, what didn't work and what then broke in terms of the course of asynchronousness and pandemic talk. Obviously, there were some things in terms of project management that were broken prior to the pandemic. Let's address those first and then shift into a synchronous slash pandemic world. What are some of those things that already weren't working or were already, let's call them the biggest pain points when it came to project management? I think I already called some of them out when it comes to lack of expectation, agreed upon expectation for projects, lack of coordination, whether that's tool or communication channel When it comes to the company culture or whether it's one-off projects that are smaller scale, et cetera. So let's talk about these pain points and then shift into the remote workspace more so because I've been in the remote workspace since 2014 officially, but even a little bit before that. What about you?
1: Oh, gosh, I've been working remotely on and off for 23 years And it's been a consulting project that might have been four days on site, one day remote or a short week. People were working remotely, even as a college professor, which I did for four years at Arizona State. A lot of that wasn't really project oriented work, but in terms of remote work, some of the classes were asynchronous even before the pandemic, much less after the whole thing about hybrid or mixed uh, modalities for learning. But yeah, there's so many problems with contemporary project management. There's something like 30,000 books written pre-COVID, according to Amazon. I certainly won't profess to have read even 1% of them, but a lot of them do cover familiar ground and we can go down the list if you like. But at a high level, two ways of implementing something, you could go sort of an agile approach using a technique like Scrum, in which case you do a little bit at a time there are benefits to that, or you can do it in what they'll call a phase gate or a waterfall method, in which case you do lots and lots of planning. So just to make that a little bit more concrete, if I'm Netflix and I'm launching the latest version of our app and it doesn't work on iOS 8, that's not the contemporary version. They could fix that. No one's going to die. If we're launching a drug or a plane, that kind of needs to work from the beginning. So kind of working backwards should govern your methodology. But it is interesting how both of those methodologies, while very dissimilar, if not antithetical actually suffer from a lot of the same issues and comes down to people. I wrote my first book, Why New Systems Fail, back in 2008, after spending a decade helping companies implement enterprise systems. And it was remarkable to me, Eric, how infrequently people would be clear about what they wanted, or people lost something in translation. So they are very much human factors that lead to things like technical issues. But even if you do something like root cause analysis and the five whys, let's just say the system isn't working. Okay, why? right? Well, maybe it's because someone didn't document things properly. Why? Because that person never thought it was important. Why? Because that person's manager said, screw that, you've got other fighters to fight. So there might be a people issue at the root of a technical issue. So we could talk about this stuff for hours, but all of those problems, I'd argue, remote and hybrid work intensify because we can't pick up on some of those cues and the cognitive biases that affect all of us as human beings are more intensified if we are not seeing people and picking up on their cues.
0: Yeah, we're in this remote workspace now, you know, the Monday through Friday, the nine to five, that's just out the window at this point. Ultimately, remote work is here to stay and we're seeing continually more and more large scale workplaces announce that. I see it in LinkedIn. I see it in, you know, wherever you're looking for your business news, you're seeing it and it's scattered here and there. And it's, you know, intermixed with the whole great resignation stuff, which again, that's the other thing is like, well, wait a second, I can get the stuff done from home. The thing that you were just saying was the thing Elon brought up about people faking that they're working because of remote work. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think in a lot of senses, people are actually consistently and constantly working more from remote work because they are in front of a screen and they are barraged with notifications as well as there's the transportability, the ubiquitousness. All my work stuff's on every device that I'm always with and I'm constantly in on-call mode as well.
1: There's a lot to unpack there, but the data belies Elon's claims, Not specifically at SpaceX or Twitter or in the book, I actually cite a lot of research because things that I thought were true or hurt anecdotally or personally experienced, I wanted to make sure it was pretty solid. And with regard to productivity and remote work, something like 92% of employees reported during the pandemic being as productive while working remotely. And here's a crazy thing, Eric, something like 96% of the managers agreed. The other thing is this, if the pandemic, and I make this point in the book, only were say two weeks, right? It was a snow day and we had to go back, play time is over. That'd be one thing. But no, we've had now easily two years of on again, off again, remote slash hybrid work. And we've shown that we can be very productive doing it. My favorite quote in the new book comes from a guy actually connected with on the LinkedIn software engineer based out of New Jersey, but he worked in Manhattan and his manager sent, I guess, a company-wide email saying everyone needs to be back in the office on Monday and he promptly quit. And the quote was, you're going to need to offer me more than free bagels to get me on a train for two hours every day. And (laughs) and I love that. This notion that we can just reset time just is inconsistent with what people are telling us. And it doesn't need to take every employer to say we're doing remote work. It could just be a significant number. But at the same time, I will argue that certain things are better suited for in-person communication. That's why I do think that hybrid is here to stay. Quite frankly, I wouldn't even want to hire someone who was constitutionally opposed to entering an office because that's where you build some of the relationships. So to me, we're just arguing about degree, whether you're meeting once a quarter, once a year, once a week, twice a month, whatever. We're just arguing about degrees. So there are, I think, benefits of both. And, and that's why I saw a need for the new book,
0: Yeah, and there's a couple other factors there too. You know, to go back to the remote work people are working less claim, again, I would argue that they're getting at minimum probably the same amount done. Because I think what we're not thinking of is how many times were people sitting in the office appearing to be busy when they were, in fact, just shuffling digital paperwork, right?
1: Oh, 100%. And that brings us to proximity bias. Yes. Right? I mean, I've gotten excoriated at work because I left on time or, God forbid, a bit early, but no one saw me enter at 7. No one saw me work through lunch. But Bill isn't committed to the team because he actually wants to go to the gym at the end of a day of work. That's insane. And I think another key thing that people neglect, and I cite research from Future Forum, which is um, one of Slack's think tanks or Salesforce's think tanks, people don't just want flexibility, Eric, as you know, about where they work. is something like 92% of people say, I want flexibility on where I work. I'd like to actually meet the other 8%, but that's a different discussion. Uh, Something like 96 or 97% of people don't quote me on that, want flexibility on when they work. And that's essential because that means by definition that more work is going to be asynchronous, which underscores the need for us to use similar tools and use things like team level agreements and some of the expectations that I set up in the book. If you want your project to have Snowball's chance of being successful, you can't let everyone use their own tech, right? Well, I sent you a message in Teams. I don't use Teams. Never got it. Those types of little things, to quote the great Kevin Hart, little problems become big problems, they can magnify throughout a project, getting back to your previous question about why some of these things, use a term that we both like, break bad. So it's fascinating to me, and I don't have all the answers, but hopefully I provide a framework and help people ask better questions so that their projects have a better chance of, of being successful.
0: Exactly. I want to jump right back to this point, but loop back around after I say this. I also 100% agree that hybrid is really the model that needs to be done. I I agree. Some people want to be fully remote. Even that's unrealistic because the face-to-face, even though we can augment or try to supplement that to a certain extent, fails to be the sole way of doing things because, like right now, you and I are talking and we're talking about a subject matter, and then we can hit stop on recording and then chat about... Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, but we better and I want to. And that is team building separate from team building during work time. That's the water cooler, right? That's the, oh, I don't just have to work with these people. I want to spend time with them. I want to learn and grow and trust them in ways that don't just relate to the work at hand.
1: Yeah, and there are tools that attempt to stimulate that sort of serendipitous meeting. So there's an app for Slack. I think it's on Teams as well called Donut. But effectively, it matches you with someone. And and that's great. But you still feel like it's work because you're looking at a screen versus, say, Playfair Data, which is the company that I profiled in the book. Amy Letter, who's their head of operations, wrote a sidebar comment about how they get everyone together twice a year and do those types of things at museums or ballgames. So you can have that serendipitous moment and bond with someone beyond just your email address or a Slack avatar. So does that guarantee that all of their projects will go swimmingly well? Of course not. But I'd argue that if you get to know your colleagues a little bit, your projects have a better chance of being successful. And then if I just put on my regular management hat for a minute, hold on, I'm going to go get it. Are you really going to leave a company because you can get a 5% bump in pay when you actually like the culture and the employees and you've got the flexibility, if you don't have that relationship with anyone, don't get me wrong, if you hate everyone on your team working in remotely in a hybrid way, all right, you're probably going to leave. It's only a matter of time, especially when the um, labor market is so tight with what is it, 3% unemployment right now. So I am trying to see what's happened, sort of analyze what's taken place, synthesize it, and offer some recommendations of what's going to happen in the future. But I I just don't feel like you put the genie back in the bottle here. We're not going to go back to as much as some managers want it. You know, People will quit and have quit. And in
0: fact, uh, some countries like Belgium have even passed laws about four-day work weeks. And by the way, I do want to call this out and jump proper into the book at hand. I was going to call it a thick book, but it's the same size as other books. Your book is a dense book. You have a repeat read on your hands here from me specifically and others I'll be suggesting. Grab this much like Jay did when he connected us. There's so much in here that we can't cover it all. We've touched on things here, but let's move into the book proper. How do we shift then into this new world of work? And I'm not just talking communication, collaboration, although maybe we need to set up the expectation and even the playing field, get everybody on the same page there first and then jump into the project management side of things.
1: Yeah, one of the reviews for a librarian of the new book was actually very positive. She said that here's a business writer who writes with soul. But in her review, she said something to the effect of, I still don't understand how the specific tools and technologies would play into that. And my response to that is a fair point. This book already is 350 pages, although I like to think that it's an easy read because of the style, even though you're right, there's a lot in there. But the previous book does get into the importance of tools. But getting back to your question, I would argue that we're already there. Right. But there has been no playbook. Um, I did a lot of research for this book, great online resources, one of which is the charter newsletter and their tagline. I think it's charter.works or you can Google it, something to the effect of there is no playbook for the future of work. We're building it and there's so much to unpack with that. But again, I don't have all the answers. It's not like there's a flow chart in the book but if you're a healthcare organization, you're implementing a new medical record system, then turn to page 67. But I do think that there are certain principles or guidelines. I don't want to call them rules. Because to me, a couple of things. First, I hate listicles. I used to write for ink. There was always this tension. Can you tell us the five ways to write a book? Oh, well, there aren't five ways, right? There are different styles and different types of books. But beyond that, I can't guarantee that if you check all the boxes, that your project will be successful. I can guarantee, though, that if you're doing things in a hybrid fashion, for instance, and your employees can't write well that's going to add up because what do you mean again i can't tap you on the shoulder in a meeting eric and say eric you got a second uh, what did you mean it's i send you a message or if you're using for example email and someone leaves the company all that knowledge goes away all the more reason to use the tool like slack or microsoft teams and stuff that i mentioned in the previous book but yeah it's, i mean we're already here the question is what are you going to do about it to uh, paraphrase a line from one of our favorite shows <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, in other words, the new world of work is already here. We're already in it. It's more about maintaining or increasing efficiency, but it's not just about efficiency. It's effectiveness. That's the play there with, you know, productivity people for a while now. It's not just about becoming more efficient. It's about being more effective. And I think what that means in terms of defining effectiveness in project management, go back to that three out of five number. We want to see a five out of five. Or at least a four out of five, more than a three. And it's
1: interesting The PMI states that organizations follow their, I forget what it's called, something like magic triangle. Basically things that you should do to increase your odds, they only go up another 10%, not 10 percentage points. So it might be 57% for a project coming in on or under budget, but if they do all these awesome things, it's only 62 and again, I took those stats intentionally from 2016, because that was very much pre-COVID and tools like Slack dropped in 2016, although it had a decent number of users, but certainly not the 15 million it has now. Teams I don't even think was an idea. Microsoft has so many different tools. But I do want to draw a distinction, because in the previous book, I defined these adjacent terms that I feel like people typically conflate them. So to me, communication and collaboration, just as an example, it's the same, communication means to make comments. Right? Or communicate the verb. But collaboration means working together on a project. I could have an individual project working with no one to paint my house. I'm terrible at it. I would never even try. Plus, it's 112 freaking degrees here. So that's not happening. But, you know, anytime you're working with other people, you are introducing those cognitive biases. And we all have our preferences. And I've dealt with folks who said, I don't care. In fact, I even start off the new book with a small writing project that broke bad. And I had gotten everyone, I thought, to agree on using Microsoft Teams in lieu of email, but when we couldn't even set up scheduling using Doodle or Calendly or whatever we were using at the time, it made me think we're never going to get this thing done because we can't even agree on the basics, right? It's like you're arguing with your spouse about where you want to go. I want to go to New York. I want to go to Florida. Well, you know, what are the odds that the trip is going to go? Well, <laughs> you can't even agree on the destination. So, there's a lot to unpack, but hopefully, there's a combination of data, visualizations, and graphs, stories, and advice. So, it isn't just me saying, do this, still do that, because I don't like reading books like that and I don't like writing them.
0: There's a chapter named Settle Early on the Tech. And I think that's the key because, personal experience here, I have had a number of different positions where, because I would get, let's see, so project management, we were using a specific tool everyone, like I kind of just started making a mental tally of how many times someone would make a comment about how they hated insert name of software here. I'm not going to throw them under the bus publicly, but nobody liked it. Nobody. And everybody just used it because they were told they had to, but people would even occasionally bring up, well, I don't want to use that. Can we try something different? Can we use something different? And even the administrator For the software, the person that was the head of making it work and distributing it and was coaching everybody as to how to better use it didn't like it, but was going to say, no, we've we've done enough sunk cost into this. We're going to stick with it. And I'm like, seriously, like we're just going to drown then. Yeah, it's understandable. But I always go back to the sunk cost fallacy.
1: If you go into a movie back when people went to movies and the movie sucked, you can't get back your money. But economists would say you can get back your time. Now, in reality, getting everyone in even a mid-sized organization, never mind a large one, to agree on the tools is essential. But uh, once you've made that agreement, I think that it's important to enforce it. Getting back to my book for a second at the beginning, when I said, guys, we're not doing this over email, we said this from the beginning, we basically agreed upon it. Oh, you actually meant that? Yeah. And part of being a, an effective project manager means saying no. Now, hopefully you've got the buy-in so people can't just ignore you. And that's why I'll make the argument that to your point from earlier about people being sort of de facto project managers, that's very much the case, especially if you think about so many people doing side hustles, right? They might do something on Fiber or something, one of the other ones, and you're effectively managing a client for a project. Well, guess what? You may not have gotten your PMP ticket punched, but you are effectively a project manager on this. So, you know, is your project going to be successful if you're dealing with
0: three different people to build a website and they use three different tools? It's possible, but not likely. You saying that even brings to mind the whole entrepreneurial joke where it's like, sometimes my boss is a jerk and it's me. Well, sometimes you're the project manager and the person that you're managing that's doing the project is you. So it's just you managing you. But even then things break down.
1: Oh, 100 percent is less likely because you look in the mirror. But researching the book, I came across some tools that have been around for decades, like a RACI matrix, which uh, going back to my um, consulting 15 years ago, it would have been great to say to people, right? Decide who is accountable, who is responsible, who is consulted, and who is informed. Because many times that lack of understanding cause all sorts of problems. For instance, you'd see see someone on an email, say that five times in a row. Wait a minute, you're just telling me it's done? I thought I would be consulted on this, not just informed. And again, if you think about all the little interactions and misunderstandings that can take place even over a a mid-sized project, it's actually no wonder that some of these things don't go so well. In fact, many of them don't.
0: Well, that's kind of the point there. It's not even just settling on the tech. It's settling on the, oh, we're all on the same page as to the expectation, especially going with, for example, Racy. That person thought they were going to be informed or, better yet, consulted and weren't. They were just being informed, not consulted. And when that expectation hasn't been stated from the front end of the project starting or in the initial dialogue, everything falls apart, then you throw that model or that problem into the mix of remote work and that's where we are.
1: Oh, 100% because you can't necessarily pick up on the cues and you have these malingerers in the background of people who you don't know if they're a friend or an enemy. They're just kind of quiet. Um, probably one of my favorite parts of the new book. Have you ever watched the show Succession? Yes. Okay, so we can chat about that one later. <laughs> but I specifically use characters from that show because I didn't want to get sued, but there's a project that I did a while back in which like a very long story short, we delivered twice as much functionality for 40% under budget. And it was a hybrid project. So using scrum and all those artifacts, you know, the client loved what my team and I did, but there were some folks sort of lying under the surface who wound up just castigating me. And I vowed never to work with them again, because if this is, I mean, if anything, you should be throwing our team a parade and the client loves me, but there are people who are hiding that are very difficult to spot because they're not participating or they're on a Zoom call and it's just audio and you just can't read the room. And I'm not necessarily great at reading people, but when someone doesn't say boo for three months and all of a sudden tears you a new one on an email for doing more than what you thought. I mean, the answer was, of course, they didn't like the fact that it probably cost them some of their bonus, but... Again, they didn't want to say that. So it is incredibly thorny. And I think one of the strengths of the new book is that it isn't just theoretical. I reached out to a number of friends and they're not proper case studies, they're more sidebars, but you know, people who had a harder time doing a project because it was hybrid. There's an example of my friend, Tom, who works for a pharmaceutical company. He works in IT and he had to set up an actual lab with routers and modems and all that. And it normally would take him a day, but because it was hybrid slash remote, people would say, oh yeah, that that switch is in the um, cardboard box. Oh, thanks, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you be more specific, please? So it wound up taking a week. And as a result, uh, he got really frustrated over it. But um, yeah, it's, it's not just me substituting writing for therapy, although there's some of that I did find other people with very different backgrounds who experienced problems on these kinds of projects. So I I didn't think I was saying I thought that a lot of people were having these issues. And of course, if that's the case, any nonfiction author needs to think about who's going to buy the book and what do they do with the information.
0: And I think that's the key is there's people who, whether they are, again, official project managers or unofficial, they've experienced these pain points that we've been talking about in some form or another and may not have been aware of it as much, but maybe we've brought that back to the surface. Sorry for helping you relive your pain. But I think the key here is we now find ourselves in this new reality. Again, there's no one size fits all. There's no silver bullet. But let's start to get into what can be some of the initial prescribed ways to start to make project management, again, whether you are admittedly one or not, work better in this remote workspace?
1: I'll pick on one that I mentioned briefly earlier, this notion for improved writing. It is remarkable to me what passes for decent writing and you you're know, losing a lot of context. Now, not everything needs to be written down. Tools like Slack have got, have you seen clips? Gene Corp videos, kind of like Loom with yeah. inside Slack. So using the right tools is certainly a starting point, but there are things that are going to need to be written down. And there's a sidebar in the book from my friend, Josh Bernhoff, who does writing workshops for companies and companies like Amazon and Automatic, the company behind WordPress, the company that powers last time I checked, 43% of the web have actually brought in people to teach employees how to write more effectively. Because of that, you're sending one or two messages, not 13 or 14 confused folks. Another tip that I give is to when vetting partners, look at the tools that they use. There's an example of an SEO firm based on the UK that I was vetting for some work on my own site, and I was really impressed with how they had a simple page on their website for the tools that we use, right? We're pretty flexible, but we have found that Trello and Asana and Slack and Zoom and et cetera, et cetera, are really useful. That is the window into how they manage projects and look at productivity. If they basically said, we don't use anything, right? We only use email. They could still be a decent firm. But again, what are the odds that the project goes well if you're using tech that's 25, 30 years old? So, vetting partners and even employees um, automatic does this before they hire someone, they give that person a small project and that person can't deliver the goods. Then they'll pay that person for the work performed and say, nice to know you. So, there are all sorts of things that I recommend in the book. Uh, another key one is this notion of a pre-mortem. And invariably, when I talk to people about pre-mortems, they said, oh, don't you mean post My one friend, Scott Birkin, who ironically used to work at Automatic and wrote a really good book called The Year Without Pants, um, highly worth checking out, was the only person who said, oh, yeah, we did them at Microsoft sometimes. This notion that assume the project isn't going to do well. And then use the past tense, why didn't it go well? And do that whole root cause analysis thing. Uh, In the book, I detail the example of Hertz spending, get this, $32 million on a website in a mobile app in 2016, not 2007, when the iPhone launched 2016, there were mobile apps back then and certainly websites. And I can't help but think, Eric, that if they had done a pre-mortem, maybe they would have identified some of the issues that ultimately plagued the project and found both companies in court.
0: So when you say the words premortem, like obviously people know the term postmortem. They're like, oh, once it's over, like, let's go and say what killed it. But premortem is if people are not kind of following along here, what could kill it, what might kill it, what will kill it.
1: And quite frankly, it isn't even my idea. Yeah. We didn't do them on most of my projects. People assume that things would go perfectly, which, of course, rarely happened. But in the book, I cite a 2015 HBR piece from a person basically making the case that we ought to be doing them. I'd argue that the need for doing that is certainly accentuated in a remote or hybrid world because of a lot of the problems that I
0: identify early on in the book. So in the SWAT method, there is sort of a pre-mortem component to the weaknesses and or threats aspects of SWOT. It probably doesn't necessarily cover it as much as pre-mortem does.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some overlap. And to me, asking those fundamental questions is probably more important than saying, should we do a pre-mortem? Should we do a SWOT analysis? Should we do both? It's just, to me, essential to assume that there's a very good chance that this project won't go well. And that's another reason that I recommend a pilot. So going back to that Hertz example, imagine if instead of spending $32 million and starting, said, well, let, let's start with $200,000. And why don't you build a simple feature on a rough prototype of an iOS app? And if we couldn't work together on the bat, then hey, feel free to spend the other $31,800,000. But wouldn't you want that information beforehand? And I understand why, and I don't know who's at fault, one company or the other, probably a combination of both, but I understand why companies would hire someone with that sort of cachet, the old um, axiom, no one ever got fired for hiring our IBM is still alive and well. But even those companies are not immune from the kinds of problems that plague these projects. It's not like one company has completely cracked the knot on this. It's ridiculous to me when companies say, oh, wow, we're, we're remote now, we're hybrid now, they hit a switch. Well, you're not GitLab, you're not automatic. These companies founded that way. They have spent years building their culture, training their employees, and the idea, that you can just say, we'll do everything on Zoom now. I think that's absurd, Yeah, right? And many times we tried to replicate, and I make this point in the previous book, an inefficient process through, say, Zoom, when the bigger question should be, is there a fundamentally better way to do this? But many times people don't want to ask that question for whatever reason.
0: One of the more recent, I guess it's not as recent now, but it was somewhere in the 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that realm, I started to get this metaphor of, You know what? Just because the tech is there doesn't mean that that Iron Man suit getting put on top of you, Tony Stark, means you don't already have your issues that exist that you need to deal with, your company culture. These are some of the things that you bring up as other prescribed ways of starting to make things work better project management wise in terms of if you're not doing enough formal training, if you're not, like you said, training your employees to be better writers with a certain threshold that you expect of them.
1: Or training them in a different tool. Yes. I mean, Cal Newport will equate Slack to email 2.0, and I understand why, but it isn't, right? That's like calling your, to quote the great comedian Gary Goldman. that's like calling your convertible an ornate cup holder. It'll do that, but it'll do a lot more. But many people don't understand the power of these tools, but I'll be the first person to say, you're right. This isn't just about picking a sauna and everything else takes care of itself. To me, it is a multidimensional issue, and hopefully the book does a good job at looking at different aspects of it and not just proposing a single, you know, one-size-fits-all solution. I think there are plenty of things we can do, some of which we talked about today, others we haven't, but yeah, this notion that if we just had the right PM or we just had the right process or tool, I mean, there are still bad ideas. (laughs) I mean, there's that Microsoft morgue Right. So over the 45 years or whatever, the company's been around, they've, they've had some good ideas. They've had some some good ideas. So there are no guarantees. And I think that's a strength, not just of this book, but my writing in general. I, I don't have all the answers, uh, but hopefully I'm helping people conceptualize things and think of a, a good framework and a, and a good set of questions.
0: Yeah, you're bringing up the right scenarios. You're asking the right questions. You're asking them to ask the right questions of their scenario, circumstance, et cetera, Uh, it's almost business philosophy. You're not providing the answers. You're asking them to provide the answers, but you're walking them to that place of asking those questions to themselves and their teams
1: hopefully it's really organic and they can see where things are going, but they're thinking of things in a different way. But no, it's again, this is not a book about how to implement Salesforce in a healthcare organization. And here's a template for you to follow, right? Or even with things like notion, you download a template, you might want to tweak it a bit, but this is how you would pack for a trip. You know, projects are a lot more involved than imagine if different people were responsible for packing different things in a trip and something wasn't clear. Oh, shoes. Uh, I thought you meant dress shoes. Well, I like to go for a run with the hell are my sneakers.
0: Oh, I didn't see the itinerary. That's the itinerary guy's job. And he didn't tell me that we were doing dancing that night. So I didn't bring dancing shoes. I didn't bring flip-flops. I didn't you know, I didn't pack those because I only knew about things I thought we were going to need.
1: By the way, I think this is the only podcast in history that's successfully stitched together dancing shoes, succession, and breaking bad.
0: There you go. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, there's so much more. I mean, like I said, it's not just a thick book. It's a it's actually normal size book. It's a dense book. And that's good in a good way. Like there's so much analytics. There's so many case studies slash research slash just there's so much in here. And I can see why Jay said what he said. In fact, I'm just going to open. I mean, the book, it's right here in front of me. I'm going to read what he said. He said, because I really like Jay. Uh, he said, I, li- I learned more in these pages than I did in the 13 years running an all remote professional services company. It's terrific and timely. And this book is required reading for all team leads and managers. That's Jay Baer. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. And I think we need to point people to where they can find out more about one, you and your previous 11 books and this one. <laughs>
1: PhilSimon.com has got all the information that you could need. Excerpts of all the books, sample videos, podcasts, blog posts, and um, you know, uh, courses to take.
0: Awesome. Well, it's all there. Phil, it's been great talking with you this time. Obviously, you're prolific. So I expect you to come back on. I'd really like that. And we could talk about it. I think the
1: previous book, "Great managing Collaboration, is, is still very relevant. And I'm sure I have more books in me, but, but I might need to breathe on this one for yeah. a bit and get the, the next big idea. But I am intrigued about productivity. I don't think that there's necessarily a book there, but I feel like people, again, conflate personal productivity with group productivity or project management. And yeah, there's some overlap there, but yeah, I'd love to be back on. Thanks. I, I really had a great time.
0: Phil, thank you so much. Great talking with you. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Phil Simon. I know I did. I had a great time talking with him even after recording. We turned it off and we kept talking for a while. This book is great. Honestly, this book is one of the top 10 productivity books probably in my list now. I probably should figure out what the other five are because I did that one episode on the top five a while ago, and really, it's more like a top 10, but that was the first five. So I will link up to the book in the show notes, connect with him in the show notes as well. I hope that you got something out of this. I hope that you felt heard and seen when it comes to the communication and project management issues that come up because of remote work and hybrid work. You're not alone. Trust me. If you found this podcast helpful, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing it with somebody that you know needs to hear it. Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice, wherever you're listening to this, or go to the show notes at list.com. Hit the share button there. You'll also find the link there to jump on over to Blinkist and check out the shortcast episodes of Beyond the To-Do List. There are over 75 shortcast episodes there. They're all in 7 to 10 minute length, and it's a great way to get a quick productivity boost on the go. Again, that's beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for sharing this episode with somebody. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next episode.